All right, if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to uh, Mark chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning in Mark 7. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can find this in the bulletin. Uh, the past few weeks, we've seen in, in our Mark series some really important things about Jesus. Uh, he has been claiming to be God and, and actually demonstrating himself to be God. Um, a couple of weeks ago, he fed 5,000 people in the desert, just like God fed his people in the desert with manna from heaven in the Old Testament. Uh, last week, he led his 12 disciples through a sea against the wind, just like God led his 12 tribes through a sea against the wind in the Exodus. And today we find one more. Uh, right after the Red Sea, the people of Israel go to the Mount Sinai and they receive the law of God, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. And here Jesus gives to his people his law and helps us understand God's law in its appropriate way. This is all about the authority of Jesus as God to give the law. Let's read it, and then we'll talk about that this morning. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and uh, whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him and again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. 
Many people would say that um, we live in a time where authority is in crisis, even the very concept of authority. Uh, as soon as someone claims authority, there are counterclaims. Uh, we disagree about a lot of things, and everybody is claiming their own authority source for what they think, and there seems to be no referee, no, no place for everybody to go to appeal to say, tell us who's right and who's wrong, uh, especially when you get down into matters of faith and religion and worship and how to serve God. There are so many different opinions in the world, so many religions. Actually, even within Christianity, there are so many different types of denominations and opinions about this and that and the other to whom can we appeal now we might think that's a modern issue but I'm saying it's not because here in this passage they got the same issue the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus basically contradicting what the disciples are doing they appeal to one authority and Jesus appeals to another and we're going to see this morning the good news that Jesus sets us free from man-made religion to give us the kind of religion that comes from God, straight from God to us. And that's good. Uh, this morning, this might not be the sermon you came to church expecting to hear. We're going to talk about some things that you maybe have never thought of in your life, like dietary laws and stuff like that. But I think you're going to find it to be very valuable for your everyday life. So let's look at your bulletin. There are three parts of the story, three questions we want to ask. Verses 1 through 5, what was the dispute of the Pharisees? Verses 6 through 13, how did Jesus respond? And then verses 14 to 23, why does it matter? What conclusion does Jesus draw from this, okay? Let's look first of all at the Pharisees' dispute. Verse 1 tells us, if you look at that, that Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, that word, they had come from Jerusalem, indicates that they were there not on pleasure but on business. That that word used is a word for a business trip, to go officially out from one place to another. The scribes are, have been sent from the principal's office in Jerusalem to check up on Jesus and his disciples. They had heard about the movement that was going on around Jesus and they want to know what they can criticize. In fact, we already know that the Pharisees and the scribes are against Jesus at this point. They had already, some of them, started to plot to destroy Jesus. And so, by the way, as just a side note, before we get into the sermon, you can take this and use it how you want, but when you are already prejudiced against someone, you're going to find things that are wrong with them every time. But that doesn't mean the things you found wrong are actually true. Because a lot of times, your prejudice speaks before reason and before actual observation speaks. That's just a side note free of charge this morning. Take that one as you will. Uh, here it says when they went, verse 2, they saw what, they, what we should not be surprised they saw. They already were against Jesus, and so it's no surprise that they saw something wrong. What was it? They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, kids, let me tell you, today this is not about hygiene. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't do all this washing because they were clean. It is a good thing to wash your hands before supper. You've got to listen to your parents. Don't tell them Pastor Stan told you you don't have to wash your hands ever again or that Jesus told you. That's not what this is about. They took washing before dinner and made it a religious thing. That's the difference. 
they made it an item of religious worship and religious belief rather than just hygiene. So some traditions are good, but when traditions that are just made up by people are elevated to the level of religious requirement, it suddenly becomes bad, which is what we see playing out here. It says there in verses 3 and 4, they did this for a, in, in, in a very elaborate manner. They not only washed their hands, but when they came in from the marketplace, they also washed their whole bodies. That word wash in verse 4 is the word baptize. They baptized themselves every time they came in from a public place home to eat. And then the word baptized is used again. They baptized their cups. They baptized their pots. They baptized their copper vessels. And they even baptized their couches. They're baptizing everything. Again, not because of hygiene, not because we want to be clean people, but because they had come to believe that was what God wanted. And so the accusation that comes against the disciples in verse 5 is very simple. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? You might want to, if you're an underliner, you might want to underline the word defiled there in verse 5. That's an important word. It's a word from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus. It was the opposite of being clean. It was the opposite of being holy. Again, in a religious sense, not just in a physical sense. So think about it for a second. They're saying that the disciples are religiously unclean, like unclean before God, because they didn't do what they said. What are they assuming in that conclusion? What are they assuming that they shouldn't really be assuming? That, they, that, that what they say, no matter what, what the, the tradition of the elders has been, no matter whether it's from God or not, has authority and an authority that's on the level with God's authority. They had come to assume that their authority mattered just as much as, perhaps even more, than God. And I want to tell you this morning, we all do that to some degree in our lives. And we've got to watch it. We've got to be careful about it. It's a real thing. Uh, parents, have you ever seen your kids arguing with one another? And maybe one is bossing the other around, and at some point the, the one's not listening, and so the other one throws down the mom card or the dad card. Well, mom said you have to do this, even if mom hasn't actually said it, right? And most of the time mom hasn't actually said it or dad hasn't actually said it. Uh, they may even come to you directly and say, Dad, Make them stop. Make them share that toy with me. Make them do what I want them to do. See what they're doing? They're appealing to a higher authority, but they're actually appealing to their own authority, pretending like they're appealing to mom's authority. And that's, what the, that's what these Pharisees and these scribes had had the habit of doing. This had become traditional, meaning generationally they had done this. They had claimed God's authority for things that they had simply made up. And they felt like, therefore, they had the right to tell people, people who were following God, the disciples and Jesus, that they were religiously out of court because they would not line up with what they had decided was right. We do this every single time we assume that we can appeal to anything as the highest authority in matters of faith, in matters of worship, in matters of obedience to God, no matter what it is. 
That's what we're doing too. Uh, it may be tradition. There are still a lot of traditions out there that are religious traditions. Uh, tradition, by the way, is not in itself a bad thing. Jesus is not here saying you need to become more contemporary, less traditional. That's not the point. He's saying tradition, which is the passing on of things from one generation to the other, can be either bad or good, depending on what you're passing on. And if in religion and in faith you're passing on something that is man-made and not God-derived, you're passing on a bad thing. And so what that means is, modern person, that it may not be that you have this attachment to worshiping traditions, but it is very much that we have this habit of worshiping our own feelings and our own ideas, things that we came up with. And we think they're new, but actually we're feeling and thinking up things that people thought up before anyway. Because there is no new idea under the sun. Same stuff just happens generation after generation. And God, you know, Jesus responds, we're going to see in a moment, very, very harshly against this practice. Very harshly. Because at the end of the day, there's a ton of differences about God in the world. There's a ton of different opinions. There's a ton of different ideas about how to worship God. Different ideas about how to be right with God. There's got to be a way to test which one actually is that way. And it can't be your voice. And it can't be my voice. And it can't be the voice of the 51% at any given time or place. And it can't even be customs that we have accepted, even if they're quite apart from the Word of God. It must be the Word of God alone. As Christians, we believe we have a religion from the Lord that is not man-made. It's what makes it different. It's, the Bible is not just about how people tried to figure God out. The Bible claims to be a book about how God came to us and figured us out <laughs> and told us how he wanted to be thought about, spoke about, worshipped, and all the rest. And we have to follow that. We have to be very careful about that or else we could end up like the Pharisees and scribes. I mean, think of the irony. They're opposing God. Jesus is God in favor of their own ideas. The old writers about uh, the Bible used to call the Bible a touchstone for faith. You know what a touchstone is? A touchstone is not just a movie company. A touchstone is a piece of slate, a piece of rock, a special kind of rock that's cut out of the mountains. And from, from ancient times, they've used touchstone to test whether gold is real or not because real gold, 24 karat, when it's scraped across the touchstone, will leave in a certain shape and a certain color of marking. Fake gold will not leave that marking. They, they figured it out a long time ago, and they actually still use it today. And these old writers said the Bible is like a touchstone. You can take any idea, you can take any thought, any imagination, anything someone tells you is true about God or that you have to do if you're going to go to heaven, and you take it and you scrape it up against the Bible, and you're going to see whether it makes the mark or not. You're going to see whether it's in keeping with what God has said. That's the dispute. This is a dispute over religious authority. Now, second, how does Jesus respond? Look at verses 6 through 13 and just kind of revisit it as you look over those verses. And I want you to tell me, is there any other place in the Bible where Jesus is more harsh than this? I mean, there are times Jesus is harsh, by the way, quite sharp. He's not always, and many times he's very gentle, and he 
certainly welcomes sinners with great gentleness. But there are times when he is extraordinarily razor sharp. And this one he is, and he's cutting. Look at what he says. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. They came to the disciples saying, your disciples are not doing well. And Jesus says, well, you're doing well at doing evil. At being a hypocrite, which means an actor, someone who's not the same on the inside as you claim to be on the outside. That's what you are. You're doing well at being an actor religiously. And then he quotes from Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away. God doesn't want worship that's just outward. He wants worship that's inward. In vain do they worship me, he says. Vain, that word comes from the Ten Commandments. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It means meaningless. It means pointless. Jesus is saying to these people, your religion is pointless. It's meaningless. Why, Jesus? Why would you say that about someone who has good intentions? Jesus, why would you say that someone's religion is is pointless if outwardly they look okay? Look at Jesus' answer. Verse 7. Because they teach as doctrines, as settled truths, the commandments of men. Verse 8. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You leave God to hold to men. God has commandments and you turn to mere traditions, customs, and you replace the one with the other. Jesus shows them you know, how, how bad that was. You know, there he, he begins to give an example in verse 9 of how they had ruined, actually, God's commandments by their own added traditions. He says, look at the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, and the commandment that says whoever curses or reviles their father and mother should die. Those were actual Bible verses from Deuteronomy. And Jesus says, that's what God wants you to do. He takes it seriously that you don't honor your parents. Which, by the way, is not a command that expires when you turn 18. Actually, the older your parents get, the more you have opportunity to honor them, especially as the roles reverse eventually. And they need you more than you need them, which is very opposite of the way it was when you first came into this world. That's your moment to honor them, according to God. And yet, here's what they had done. They had taken a custom, a tradition called korban, which basically said that you could take your life savings or your land or your house or whatever it was, and you could say, I pledge this to God when I die. And you could keep it during life and use it, but when you died, whatever was left, you had to go to God. Couldn't go anywhere else. That was not a God commandment, by the way. That was a human invention. And they observed it so strictly that even if a person said, hey, I said this was Corban, but now my mom needs my care. Can I get some of that money out and use it for her? They'd say, no, because you gave it to God like we said you should do. Do you see? Jesus is upset about this. He says, many other such things you do, verse 13, invalidating, making void Verse 13, making void, that's strong. Uh, When you void a check and you try to cash it, what happens? Can't cash it, it's voided. A voided check is no good. It's not even worth the paper it's printed on. 
He says, you void the commandment of God, the word of God, when you try to add to it. Think with me a minute. Imagine we're at an art gallery, and there is a beautiful painting by Rembrandt on the wall. The Dutch master. Beautiful painting. And imagine you thinking, as you, watch, as you look at it, oh, great, I brought my brush today. Oh, look at here, I brought my paints. I think I could improve this painting. It's kind of dull after all. There's all these browns, and you know, Rembrandt's so dark. And yeah. I want to make it a little bit more exciting, give it some more flair. Imagine going to the museum curator and saying, hey, I've got an idea. Come, see my vision. What do you think they would say? Well, they wouldn't let you do it. And if by some chance you were able to do it, I guarantee you, your brush strokes wouldn't make it better. It'd make it worse. It would actually take the value out of it which would have a lot of value because it's a Rembrandt. This is the way God thinks about his word. We think, oh, I've got an idea. If I added this here, if I took this away there, because I don't like that part, then in the end, it's going to be a greater masterpiece. But what actually happens is it becomes a vandalized masterpiece. It invalidates what's there by either adding or taking away. For the Pharisees, their hobby was to add. I think today our hobby is more to take away than to add, although we do add too. Don't get me wrong. I think we love taking away. I, I, I think it, we do it all the time. We, we think that if we don't know what the Bible says, then we won't be responsible for it. And so we like to keep ourselves vague in our understanding. I find that a lot. I'm not you know, accusing any particular person, but I, I just hear it a lot as a pastor, not just here, but everywhere. That as long as, you know, as long as we can say, oh, well, I don't think the Bible is really that clear about that. As long as we can say that, we, we make ourselves feel better that we're off the hook. Well, let me give you a little secret. You're not off the hook, right? And what you're also doing is you're adding a very blasphemous brushstroke to what was already a beautiful work of art. Did you know people in the Bible died over this? Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, when they came to offer God what it was called strange fire, fire that they had thought up rather than the one God told them to offer, God struck them dead. Eli's sons struck dead because they committed immorality before and after the worship service that they led. Uzzah, David's friend, who thought he could reach out his hand and touch the Ark of the Covenant to steady it on the cart because it would be better if I touched it, he thought, died. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, because you might say, well, that's the Old Testament stand, you know, God's angry. Nope. The New Testament... Ananias and Sapphira, Christians, who came and said, this is what I have given to the Lord. Look at the offering I gave, when really they had only given a fraction of that. They lied to God. They made a loophole for themselves. God killed them. God killed them. Do you understand? Why? Because it turns out God is looking for one thing and one thing only. Worshippers who worship him from the heart. 
And the only way to worship God from the heart is to first be willing to listen. The listening ear leads to the open servant's heart. When the listening ear is plugged and you want to do your own thing, you're never going to have a servant's heart. And what God is looking for in your life and mine is a servant's heart. And you've got to listen. You've got to learn how to obey. You've got to learn how to read and, and stick to what's written rather than trying to make it better. That's the second thing, Jesus' answer. But lastly, why does this all matter? Let's bring it to a conclusion here and think about how this might actually apply in our daily life. Well, uh, in verses 14 through 23, Jesus tells us. He, he helps his disciples understand the meaning in verse 14, he says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Which is an indication he's about to say something that's hard to understand, by the way. Anytime you hear Jesus say, Hey, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Like, pay attention. Understand. Let the reader understand. He's about to say something difficult. He says, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The disciples are confused, verse 17. They come to Jesus later and say, Jesus, tell us what you were talking about. Tell us what you were talking about. Now, why would they be confused? Because in the Old Testament, uh, God had not only given the Ten Commandments, but he had given other laws that had a lot to do with what you eat and what you don't eat. They had a lot to do with you know, how you dressed and your hygiene. It wasn't the washings that the Pharisees were saying, but there were other washings that you had to observe, and there were sacrifices and all that stuff. And they were wondering, Jesus, are you invalidating those laws? What are you doing, Jesus? Jesus explains, verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Very picturesque there. And then in parentheses, thus he declared... All foods clean. Verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come all the evil. And he, he lists out basically words that describe violations of the Ten Commandments. Every one of those words describes a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. Murder and adultery and coveting and deceit and sensuality, etc. What's Jesus doing here? Jesus is saying something that I hope you'll understand is so vital to your relationship with God this morning. Jesus is saying that any outward law in the Old Testament that was merely ceremonial, whether it was a sacrifice, a diet law, a priesthood law, all those laws were given to illustrate the true source of defilement, which is found in the human heart, and to illustrate the true source of cleansing, which would come not from a goat being killed, but from the Son of God being nailed on a cross. Jesus is not contradicting the Old Testament for this simple reason. The law of the Ten Commandments, God wrote with his finger on stone to be kept forever. The laws about diet, where you couldn't eat bacon and shrimp, they were merely seen by Moses and a pattern of what he saw was brought down for a temporary time until such time that Jesus could come. Because you see, the ceremonial laws were all about showing what Jesus would have to do and why. We are defiled. 
Constantly we are defiled, not by what we do outwardly, by food and stuff like that, but we're defiled by the inward corruption of the heart. What must happen? A substitutionary sacrifice. Someone must be killed in our place. An animal stood for what Jesus would do. And then, after he washes me in his blood, my whole life belongs to him. Just like the Jewish people in the Old Testament had to determine, is this a clean food or not a clean food? Can I eat it or not? We have to go through our daily lives asking, is this holy or is it not? Is this thought holy or is it not? Is this word that I'm about to speak holy or not? Is this action what God wants me to do or not? It stood for a life of total devotion that came by grace. And amazingly, Jesus, there in verse 19, is actually claiming to be the one who brings an end to the pattern. Maybe when you're a kid, your mom or your grandma or your, maybe your granddad or dad sewed things. A dress, a blanket, a whatever. My family are big sewers. That was our whole livelihood was sewing. And so I, I saw a lot of sewing as a kid. When you sew things, you have to have a pattern to follow. You either make it yourself or you go to Walmart and get those little cool little, uh, do they still have those envelopes with a little thing? And then you bring it out and all the patterns that you need are in there and you lay them out and you cut all your pieces to pattern and then you sew them together. Once you finish making the dress, what do you do with the pattern? Do you string it together and pin it to your dress so you can wear it around with the dress because of how cool it is? Do you wear it instead of the dress? Hopefully not, right? You wouldn't use it for a blanket instead of the quilt you made because it wouldn't work. When the thing itself is done, the pattern is no longer needed in the same way. And so as Christians today, verse 19 tells us that the laws about food are no longer to be kept by us. At least not for religious reasons. You may decide to eat or not eat things just based on whatever, health or hygiene or whatever. But you don't have to do it for religious purposes anymore because the thing itself has been completed. Now the point of this sermon is not just to say you can eat bacon. Although that is true, you can eat bacon. And, that, and you got a verse for it there in verse 19. That's your verse, bacon lovers. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's not the whole point. Here's the point. Do you understand your true defilement before God? Jesus says it comes from within you. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner in your heart of hearts. My heart is a well of poison water. Do you know that? Do you know what Jesus alone can do for your heart? That because he was the sacrifice by his blood, he can touch that well of poison water and make it sweet again. Make it run clear. He can present us faultless before God. He's the priest who stands and intercedes for us always. He sends his Holy Spirit so that my thoughts and my desires begin to change, become different. 
Do you understand what Jesus can do for you? That's what this is all about. Your heart is dirty, but Jesus can touch it and make it clean. Do you understand your life belongs to him completely? Just as much as it belonged to the Old Testament believers who had to sit there and figure out all the foods that they were eating, whether they were kosher or not. You don't have to do that, but you do have to make sure your actions are holy. Because God has called you to holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. And it ought to occupy your attention. It ought to, it ought to occupy brain space every day for you to think about every thought, every action as you live before the face of God. Lastly, do you realize your freedom? Christian, you are free from having to believe about God things that just entered into the mind of man or your own mind. You're free to believe what God actually has said about himself through his son Jesus. Christian, you do not have to obey for religious purposes the things that people say you have to do. Now, don't get me wrong. In, in civil government and in other areas, you, you need to obey laws. This is talking about religious matters. If someone comes to you and says, in order to be a Christian and go to heaven, you have to wear a suit on Sunday. You can tell them, no, I don't. Nothing wrong with wearing a suit on Sunday. But you don't have to, to, go, to be saved. That's an inappropriate use of human authority. What your job is, is to obey God. And what God says, you got to do. And we as leaders of the church, my job every day, as the way I think about it, is all I'm up here to say is what I believe God is saying. I'm not trying to just make stuff up. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I am trying every week to stick as close as I possibly can to what God is saying so that you won't have your conscience bound to me. I don't want you to obey because I said it. Or because I thought it. I want you to obey and I want you to believe because he said it. Because you stand before God, your creator. And he will judge you, not me. And not anybody else. Now the Bible, we got our hands full because the Bible teaches us a whole bunch of things that we need to go learn. And a whole bunch of things we need to go practice. But as we do so, let's make sure that we're letting him speak and that we're listening to him. You are free if you've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Amen?